Well, chairs. Um, I learned it on, I watched the history of the Vatican. And uh, it came from um, a Catholic saying um, that Pope somebody wrote to Abraham Lincoln. Swear to goodness. All right, so, I don't know. He asked. I, I, I told him. All right, so, remember a while ago, we took a collection for a family that was living, um, I think, well, it's right here, in Florida. And they were in a bad way. They were actually sharing a plate for uh, a family. And so the, the women's group, um, they got together. They sent a care package down. We took a collection so we can send them a gift card down. We received a letter from that family. And I thought it appropriate to read it to you guys because this is kind of, well, this is, this is how as a community of faith that we, we make a difference. Okay, so it goes like this. Dear members of Oasis Church, From what I hear, you guys are a whole bunch of real people just like us. And us real people have real problems in life. um, Us people have real problems in life too sometimes. Well, me and my children are very thankful that people like you have touched our lives. But not only that, but God has touched our lives through you. Only God knew how badly we were in need. And we cannot express to you how much we would like to thank everyone at Oasis Church. Thank you for helping us when we truly needed it. Food was bought, needed clothes, items were purchased. Me and my children bow our heads and truly say thank you to you and to God. I cannot tell you how this situation has also boosted my children's faith, not only in God, but more so in people. Seeing selfishness everywhere, every day, and then having a gift like this come from out of nowhere is a miracle in their lives. The first thing out of my 17-year-old son's mouth was, now I can't believe there's people out there that care. More than anything that was bought, the statement, more than anything that was bought, that statement and the look that was in both my son's eyes as they stood there bewildered by this gift was was worth more than gold. You show them there are people out there that care and you show them God still cared about them even though they had just gone through a major heartache in their life, their mom had passed away. No words can say how thankful I am for that. So thank you, Oasis Church, for touching our lives for God. We will not forget. So that's, that's what a, care, a single care package sent to a family can actually do. And begin to change the lives of people. So uh, now, Rob. You have something to say, God, for your grace and for your mercy, for the the idea of the church coming together in unity, because that's where your blessing lies. Lord, as we dig into your word this morning, though, I I do believe that we need to hear this, God. I know that it's going to be difficult for us to, to wrestle with. But you are a God of grace, and even though you correct us and you nudge us and you push us, you refine us, it's because you love us. And so, God, we open ourselves up to that love this morning. I pray the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable in your sight. My rock and my redeemer. Amen. All right. So church number two In the book of Revelation, as we're going through this seven letters to the churches, seven churches, and they get written a letter by Jesus. 
Church number two is the church of Smyrna. And this church is, or I'm sorry, this city is still a, a city today. It's called something different. It's in Turkey, but it's still standing today. And this is the only church that Jesus doesn't have anything bad to say about them. There's nothing that he has anything against, or he, at least he doesn't share that. Now, it was also a very important trade city. It was about 35 miles north on the coast from Ephesus, and it had this great harbor. And the, the entrance to the harbor was very narrow. So in times of war, this harbor could be closed and protected. And so it was not only a, a harbor for import and export, but it was, a, it was good for a military, to take a military stance. And it also, uh, the, the town, the city of Smyrna had, it was the end of a, a very large land trade route that flowed from the, in, in the country and it landed here in this city. And from here, all of these exports would go out to their various locations and things would be come in and they would go up this, this very large trade route. Now, just as Ephesus was, Smyrna was a very wealthy city. It was a city that was commercially successful. And so, here we have this little church in this big city. It was also known as the glory of Asia. See, the city was destroyed, and then in 290 BC, it was rebuilt. And it was re- when it was rebuilt, no expense was spared in the rebuilding of this city. It had wide, spacious streets that ran from one end to the other. And all of this commerce could take place. There was one famous street in the city. It was called the Street of Gold. And it ran around Mount Pagus. And it was said to look like a necklace adorning the neck of a goddess. And so nothing was spared as they put this city back together. It had, it had a stadium for sports. It had its own library. It had the biggest public theater in all of Asia. Now, in the city also housed five major temples to five different gods. Uh, one of them is Cybele, Asclepius. I have no idea if I'm pronouncing that right, but I got the last three. Aphrodite, Apollo, and Zeus. Those are easy. And so they have these major temples built to these pagan gods. And so this small little Christian church in this very wealthy city, could have been suffocated by everything that's going on around them, by these temples and these cultic worship practices. But see, but here's the thing. In the midst of these false gods, in the midst of these, these people worshiping, even just a little bit of light will push back the darkness. Even just a little bit of light illuminates what is dark, when the Spirit of God is at work in his people and illuminating their spirit in their lives, the darkness will not overcome it. And it's said today that this city, half its population is still Christian. Now, Smyrna was also a free city and an assize city. And if you don't know what that means, you can go back to last week and listen to that sermon because I explain it there. 
And it was considered the paradise of municipal vanity. It was all about bigger. It was all about better and the most elaborate. And wealth was, was a way to measure status. Wealth was a way to measure if you were important or not. And so this city looked down upon the Christians in it because the Christians really had nothing and they, they were poor. And they looked, were looked on with contempt. In fact, they were considered of no importance at all. Now, one of the reasons why life was so hard in this city for the Christian was because Smyrna was one of the greatest cities of Caesar worship. What happens is, as Rome is growing and conquering and conquering and conquering, it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. They had to have something that would kind of keep everybody on the same page. They had to have something that was, that was universal. And so throughout time, this idea of worshiping Caesar became to, came to uh, take, take hold. And eventually, in the time of Domitian, you, it was by law, you had to worship Caesar as God. And so... What would happen is you would go and you would come to the altar and you would take this little pinch. We talked about this briefly last week. And you would sprinkle this, burn this little pinch of incense and you would cite these words, Caesar is Lord. And then you'd get your little piece of paper and you'd go on your way. And this wasn't about religion. This was more about political loyalty. You see, Rome was very tolerant of other religions. They didn't care what gods you worshipped as long as you worshipped Caesar. And so you had to do this just once a year. Come to the temple of Caesar, burn your incense, get your little piece of paper, and go on your way and worship whatever god or gods that you wanted to worship. But the Christian refused. They would not even do it once a year. They would ascribe the name Lord to no one except for Jesus Christ. And so they were labeled as disloyal to Rome. In fact, they were labeled as outlaws, and they were open to persecution at any moment. It was literally taking your life into your own hands to be a Christian in the city of Smyrna. Smyrna, yeah. In fact, one ancient historian wrote that nowhere was it more dangerous to be Christian than in this city. And Jesus is going to speak to this church. And this is what he'll say. The angel of the church in Smyrna write, these are the words of him who is first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Those who are victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. These are the words of Jesus being spoken to this church. And he speaks with, of, about himself with two very powerful titles. He calls himself the first and the last. And this would have, this would have uh, lifted the hearts of the people in this church because they are in constant threat of being persecuted. They are considered to be outlaws. And at any time of the day, any day, life can get really, really bad for them. Almost agonizing. 
but the power of the risen Christ from the beginning of all time to the end of all time is with them. Jesus is with them. And we can take that, that little, that just that, that little idea into our own lives to say everything in our life, every area of our life, the life of a believer, Jesus is in. What is that thing that, that is just eating away at you? That just seems to be going wrong. Is it, is it your job? Guess what? Follower of Jesus, Jesus is there with you. Is it that relationship that seems to just be falling apart around you? Jesus, he's, he's with you. He's your first and your last. It doesn't matter what life throws at you. Whether it's a curveball, whether it's a fastball, the dreaded knuckleball. I don't even care if you get hit by a pitch. Jesus is with you. He is your first and he is your last. And that thing that just seems so unbearable and you're just not going to be able to make it. You just think that you cannot even take one more breath or one more step. Guess what? Jesus. He is your first and he is your last and nothing is going to separate you from him. Paul will say it this way to the Roman church. Maybe he, Paul won't say it that way. Ta-da. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Take those words in. Take a minute just to look at that. Read it again. I'm going to give you 30 seconds to read that again and let that seep into your spirit. What would a community of faith look like that actually lived those words? I mean, we know them, we've heard of them, but what would a community look like that actually put their confidence and lived that idea that nothing can separate us from God? You know, what I find in my own life, and, and I know in, in so many people that I've spoken to, when it really hits the fan, when things go terribly, terribly wrong, we turn to God. And we look to him for our strength. And we look to him for our solace. And that's a good thing. And we should. But what about the day-to-day frustrations and the distractions that we have? The work The kids, the car, the house, your job, the bills, school, whatever it is, those things that just kind of, kind of wear on us every day, all day, those, those frustrations that we are facing every day. You know what happens? You know what I find? We tend to forget that very truth, that nothing is going to separate us from God. 
And by the time the end of the week comes, we have not cultivated our relationship with Jesus one bit. And we've missed what he might have for us. See, it's in the everyday, it's in the no matter what, that we have to continually remind ourselves, Jesus is always my first. Jesus is always my last. And nothing can separate me from him. And as you remember that, you begin to live this life of of thankfulness. And as you begin to live a life of thankfulness in the no matter what is coming at you, not based upon your circumstances, but it's based upon who you are in Christ. And as you begin to live that way, your desire and your intimacy for God grows deeper and deeper and deeper. And then Jesus will refer to himself as who died and came to life again. And this idea of coming to life again is, is, is this thing of permanence. You see, the people of this church in Smyrna, at any given moment, they could be killed. Every day could be their last day. You realize because of their faith, every day could be their last day. And Jesus is reminding them of them saying, don't, don't you be afraid. Don't you be afraid of death because I have overcome it. I have conquered death. And those, those whose names are written in the book of life will never die and they will spend eternity with the creator. They will spend eternity with me. So don't you be afraid. This body will perish, but you don't have to fear. And there is no time There is no event that can ever take place that will separate us from Jesus Christ. And nothing in this world, no matter how dark, how wrong, how broken, how bad it is, there is nothing that we, as followers of Christ, have to fear. Nothing. And Jesus is speaking these words to this church who is is under constant persecution the things that they believe. And then it says this. Jesus tells them, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. And, and you know, the word affliction there, uh, some translations have it as uh, tribulation, but the word in the Greek means pressure. And it's usually used in a very literal sense. It will be used to describe a person who is being tortured to death by placing a very large rock on them until they get squished to death. That's pressure. And this church is under constant pressure for what they believe and how they're living. They're they're under the pressure of work or not being able to find work because they will not worship Caesar and get their little piece of paper. They're under the pressure of worry and opposition and antagonism and being persecuted and being poor. It's a constant pressure cooker for them. And I would guess that anyone that lives in that kind of environment could be suffocated and crushed. You know, we don't know what it's like. And I would, I'll bet that none of us will ever know what it's like to suffer that way for our faith. But this is what this church is going through. They are under tremendous, tremendous pressure. And Jesus tells them, I know your poverty. And I think, I believe a better word would be destitution. 
See, these people are poor to the point of being destitute. They have literally nothing. Nothing. And in fact, some of them are homeless because their home has been pillaged and plundered because of who they are, because of their faith in Jesus Christ, because they are Christian. And this this city that is so wealthy has this church and these people that are destitute and they're looked down upon as worthless. And Jesus says, oh no, oh no church, but you, you are rich. You have something that money can never buy, something worth more than silver, more than gold. You have Jesus Christ. And so you have everything. I said last week, I, this is a sermon series that I taught about six years ago. And I haven't looked back at those notes at all. And so I don't even, I can't remember what I preached on last week. So uh, I don't know what I did six years ago and don't laugh because neither can any of you. But anyway, um, but I know, and I, and I'm using some of the same resources that I use, and I know what would make sense to focus on at this point. I, I do. I, I know that I should be going through the sufferings and talking about the sufferings of this church and what Jesus tells them. I mean, look, it says that the devil himself is going to get on them, man. And, and the, when the devil gets involved, that's a big deal. That's not some easy stuff right there. They're going to be put in prison and they're going to be tested. They're going to be persecuted for 10 days, which is really not a literal 10 days. It's more of a a short time. It's a period of time. And I know that we should talk about, well, what does that mean for us that, that when we're persecuted and we're tested, that we should not lose faith? That we should stay strong. And, and I get all that. And I know that would make a beautiful, feel-good sermon. And I, just, I guess I just didn't want to make you all feel good this morning. So I'm not kind of going in that direction. I kept coming and landing on something else. Because most of us are not going to suffer this way for our faith. We're just not. We joked last week. Oh, I can't blame the Ten Commandments in, the, in a public building. Darn, I'm persecuted Christian. Oh, really? I know some people, they can't put the little Jesus thing on their desk at work. <laughs> really? It's not persecuted for her faith, man. This, this, uh. Tomorrow I'm going to wake up, and the only thing that I'm in danger of dying from is driving in my car. It has nothing to do with my faith. What, what I've landed on and I kept coming back to you was half of the last half of verse nine. Jesus says, I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. And I tried to just, it doesn't make sense. There's no, there's no sermon in that. That's just, that's just some information that Jesus is giving to this church, recognizing what's going on and, and, and what can God possibly want me to do with that. And I argued with him, but I kept coming back to that little line, to that little part of the text. And so let me set things up for you because this, uh, this is where we're going. In Smyrna, there is a large population of Jews, or so they called themselves. Because look what Jesus says. 
Those who say they are Jews, but are not. And this group of people, they hated the Christian. They hated them. Not that they just didn't get along. There was a hatred. In fact, it was this group of people that would inform the Romans who the Christians were. So the Romans would come and persecute them because they would not worship Caesar. And it would get them in a lot of trouble. And they could lose everything and be put in jail. This Historically, this group, is uh, what's attributed to them is the martyring of Polycarp, the bishop of this city. It was this group of people that led the mob in their shouts to say, this man is the teacher of the Christians. And so the Romans get involved and say, yo, you've, you've got to worship Caesar or we're going to burn you to death. And Polycarp said, mm-mm. And so they, they tie him to a stake and light the fire. And as the flames begin to, to consume him, he prays a very short prayer, something in the context of, of, thank you, God, that I've been considered worthy to die for your son's name. And Polycarp is killed because of these people who say they're one thing, but they are not. And so here, this religious people, they, 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 they attend synagogue and, and they share a large part of our sacred text and they read that. They would go and they would slander these Christians on purpose to get them into trouble because they didn't like them for what they represented and who they are. And the words that they use would get them, it would ruin them personally. It would take away their homes and their lands. It would ruin them physically because they could be put in jail and killed. And so on the Sabbath day, these, these people are at their synagogue worshiping God. And then they leave and they live a life that's very contrary to the God that they're worshiping. It was said that even when Polycarp was killed on the Sabbath, that the Jews broke their own law and went and gathered wood and built the, put the wood on the stake to kill him. These people have somehow lost their way. And they, they're, they're saying one thing, but they're living something else. And Jesus calls them the synagogue of Satan. That's, that's intense, man. That's, that's, that is a no-joke thing. And I understand what Jesus is telling the church. I, I get it. And he's not promising that this is going to get better for them. He's like, yeah, persecution, maybe even death. But listen, stay faithful and you win. Don't give up because you will win because you have everything. You have me. But I keep coming back to this idea of these people who say they're one thing, but God recognizes them as something they're not. They say they're the people of God, but Jesus calls them the people of the devil. And there's the lesson for us as a church it's right there in that, that little text, that half a sentence. You know, we Christians today, the church today, many times we are called hypocrites. And there will be people that will not set foot in a church because of the hypocrisy that is running rampant throughout. Now, I have, 
I have a theory, a belief on this. Go figure. First, I think it's because it's true. We are hypocrites. I mean, everyone is. At some point or another in our lives, we will say one thing and we will do the exact opposite. It's why we need Jesus in the first place. But yet Jesus still loves us, even in our hypocrisy. And I would venture to guess that there has to be Muslims that are hypocrites and Hindus that are hypocrites and Jews that are hypocrites and atheists that are hypocrites. But many times we don't hear about them. I've never heard somebody say, I'm not going to the mosque because, man, they're just full of hypocrites. Or to that temple because, you know what? Everybody there is just a bunch of hypocrites. But it's the Christian. We are the ones that are publicly exclaimed as hypocrites. And so, what's, what's going on? What, what's, what's the deal with that? Within these words in this book, Okay, we believe these are sacred texts, that these words are just not words on a page, but but they're life. And there's something that happens to those that engage them and read them. It's our belief. And they're sacred and divine, inspired by God. Yes, but written by man, I get it, but but inspired by the Spirit of God to be written And it's lasted for thousands and thousands of years, these texts. And within these pages, God describes these these harmonies that we should live our life by in relation to him and relation to other people. Ways that we should engage this world. And these harmonies, they're good and they're right and they're beautiful. And it's good for us to live that way. And they benefit our lives. And they're healthy for us. They're, health, they're healthy physically. They're healthy emotionally. They're healthy spiritually. The things that are in this book. And we believe, it's our belief, that these harmonies are important for the Christian. Why? Because it is the truth. Not a truth. But the truth, this is, this is our belief. The words in this book have been inspired by God and they are the truth. And hypocrisy is people who claim the things that are good and right and beautiful. People who claim the truth, but their life is lived completely opposite to it. You know, many people outside our faith that don't go to church, they know about Jesus. They know the things that Jesus taught, the good things, you know, about love and grace and, and patience and mercy. And, and they, know the, they know the stories about Jesus, just kind of loving on people. And yes, it may be an incomplete idea of who Christ is, and it also may be uh, misinformed, but they know about our Jesus. They know about the grace. And the love. They know about the moralities that, that, that we are, are to practice. And I, you know, I don't even like to use that word morality because it's more, God lays out, I love the word harmony. God lays out a way that we can live in harmony with Him. And we put all, you know, law and morality. And, and no, these, 
Harmony is a beautiful thing. Harmony flows. Harmony, harmony feels good. And God lays all of this out. And so, yes, when you're a Christian and your life is marked by just impatience all the time. I don't mean if you get impatient every once in a while. Listen, we're all not perfect. We all, we all fail. That's why we have grace. That's why we have Jesus. But if your life is marked by you're just an impatient person, you claim to be a Christ follower. You're a hypocrite. When you say you're a Christian, you don't love people. It's not part of the way you operate. You're a hypocrite. When you do nothing to serve others, but your life is all about you and you getting what you want and getting the things that you need. For hypocrites. When you say, I'm a Christian, but your life is just lived as an angry, grumpy person that nobody likes to be around. That's wrong. For a hypocrite. You can have your family and you can go to church. You can get everybody together on a Sunday. And you can go to the Bible studies. And you can read the Christian books. And you can watch the Christian TV shows. But husbands, if you're not loving your wives, and wives, if you're not loving your husbands, people see that. And you're a hypocrite. And let me talk to the single people that are in dating relationships. If that relationship does not honor God, and you know exactly what I'm talking about, and you claim to be a Christ follower, we're hypocrites. You see, when you claim the truth, the truth, and you live opposite of it, people take notice. And you're tagged with that ugly, ugly word. You see, somehow... And I believe it's because we are all made in the image of God. I don't care what faith you ascribe yourself to, subscribe yourself to. We are all made in the image of God, all of us. And so somewhere deep down inside of humanity, there's this sense of what is right and what is good and what is beautiful. And you might, you might um, people can't give it the name it should or, or they... They, they call it something else or they say it came from somewhere else, but it all comes from God. And somewhere deep down in our humanity, we know what is truth and we know what is good, right, and beautiful. And it's when our lives don't look like that anymore. We are hypocrites. And the problem is we not only hurt Ourselves. We hurt the name of Jesus Christ. We not only hurt ourselves, we hurt the name of his church, the name of God. Our faith is deeply personal. It was never meant to be lived in private. Eventually, what's going on outside of these walls in your life will find its way back into these walls. 
and this community will become a product of who we are as individuals. I can't believe that this synagogue woke up one morning and the elders in the synagogue said, you know what? Let's live completely opposite of what God calls us to live and let's get the name Synagogue of Satan because that's pretty cool. But little by little, these people started to make the wrong choices, poor choices. They began to lose focus. They began to get caught up in worldly things. They lost their way. And their life in Christ, or their life with with God, just took this ugly turn. And God doesn't even consider them his people anymore. They belong to the devil. So this letter to this church is an encouragement for us that as we go through life, as the troubles come and they will come, that we are to hold fast to our faith, that we are to look to Christ for our strength, that he will not leave us or forsake us, that he is the first and the last, that he is the one that has conquered death, that he actually sees us and that our persecution won't be forever, but we will have eternal life in him. I get all that, but there is this warning in this little text that church, we need to live the very things we profess as truth. Because people take notice. Let's pray. God, I want to thank you for uh, your word. And, and, and Lord, man, it was, it was hard for me this week. Thank you for the work that you're doing. Thank you that as you wrestle in our very souls, you give, you give balm to to help with the soreness and help with the, the refining that your spirit can comfort even in the context of discipline. God, I pray for us as a church, as, as a community of faith, that we would live the truth of who you are, that we would not make excuses for why we don't or why we're not but that we would take responsibility for our own lives and we would live the way you've called us to live. And so, Lord, I pray that you would illuminate those things in our life. Show us. Search our hearts, O God. And then give us the strength to repent and to change that this body, that this community will always be known as a community of faith in Jesus Christ. Amen.